0: Have you ever thought about the doctors who look after the doctors or who looks after the doctors who look after the people who are the most vulnerable people in the world? The doctors who wade into war zones, who push into impenetrable jungles to help support and save human beings who are literally at the ends of the earth in desperation that you and I could probably never imagine. My guest on the podcast this week, Dr. Lachlan McIver is one of those doctors, a specialist in rural and remote medicine, tropical medicine, and the health impacts of climate change. From his hometown of Miller Miller in far North Queensland, Lachlan went on to travel and work in over 100 countries. He was forced to confront not only the frustrations of trying to provide medical care in extremely under-resourced environments, but broader crises such as health inequalities, climate change, and drug-resistant infections. If that sounds like a lot to bear, you'd be right. In his book, Life and Death Decisions, Dr. Lochlan McIver tells of facing his own personal battles, including depression, alcohol abuse, and bankruptcy. It's a deeply human look at the personal cost of our broken global health system and how we must work together to change it for the better. It's a brilliant conversation and I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, we've got to pay some bills. Hold up. What
1: was that?
2: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why isn't everyone else as worried about this as I am? And I connect with these people who are working in in that same field. They're like, yeah, man, I get it. Yeah, fuck, if only everyone else knew what we knew. But you, you feel almost like you're in this kind of... Crazy little intellectual cult. You've got it's like this information isn't secret. It's 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 available, and then you've got these absolute lunatics out there like denying it. I mean, God, climate change denial is just such an absurd luxury. I just cannot get my head around it. You know, the only people who, who are able to indulge in that, uh, you know, rich wankers in wealthy countries who you know, have the ability to clothe and feed and air condition themselves, while millions of people out there you know sweat and suffer and die. Even if you don't really care about you know, the fact that the planet's heating and the seas are rising and you know fisheries and crops are dying off and <laughs> all the rest of it, even if you don't care about that, if if your family or your community is going to suffer and die early and unnecessarily because of climate change, does that mean something to you even if nothing else does?
0: That is Associate Professor Dr. Lachlan McIver. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is Osher Ginsberg Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is Osher Ginsberg, Better Than Yesterday, a show that is here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday. does what it says on the box. And here at the show this week, our day-to-day is a lot better than it was yesterday. We passed 10 million downloads. My goodness, we could be more stoked. I've got to say thank you so much for helping independent podcasting be such a force in the market here, for helping conversations like the ones that we have here get out into the public sphere. Just a a quick bit of housekeeping before we we get going with the show. This Friday night, I am doing a super secret, uh, super exclusive live show. It's probably the only live show I'm going to be doing at all for this year. Friday, the 11th of November, 2022, 9.30 p.m., I'm teaming up with the brilliant Claire Kavanagh and uh, the team at Improv Theatre Sydney. We are going to be bringing you the greatest news show you've ever seen. That's that's what we're trying to do. You may not realise this, but when it comes to creating new shows, TV shows, stage shows, pretty much always there's a test show, a moment to kind of, you've got it all in place. You're like, yeah, but how does it work with an audience? It's, it's a moment to try out a new format in front of an audience, see how it goes, if you've ever been to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and see someone like Luke Heggie playing in the big room, I can guarantee you that might be in March or April. But back in December, Heggie was jumping up on small stages around Sydney five times a night for five minutes at a time, shaping the same joke over and over and again, adjusting it here, adjusting it there, using the audience feedback as guidance, killing it, dying, slaying it, taking it in the face, show by show, refining it until he's on stage in front of a thousand paying ticket holders. and. They are laughing until they we getting their money's worth. We are going to do that. We're trialing out this kind of new idea for a show, and this is your chance to see it. It's the only time it'll ever happen. The link to the tickets is in the show notes. You can find me on the Discord server if you have any dramas. The link to Discord is in the show notes as well. Um, but I'd love to see that. It'd be, uh, it'd be pretty fun. So let me tell you about my guest today, Dr. Lachlan McIver. 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 You can't say it without making him sound like an action hero, but he pretty much is. (laughs) He specializes in rural and remote medicine, tropical medicine, and public health. He did his PhD on the health impacts of climate change. Lachlan's originally from Millamilla in far north Queensland, and his travels to date have spanned almost 100 countries, He's co-authored close to 50 scientific publications in medical journals and textbooks on topics ranging from environmental health and infectious diseases to anesthetics and emergency medicine. But aside from this academic writing, Lachlan has written a memoir, Life and Death Decisions. It's, it's a brilliant book about the pressures of uh, a healthcare professional dealing with the oppressive nature of shrinking hospital budgets, under-resourced staff, war zones, politics, unspeakable exposure to trauma hour after hour, day after day, week after week. And along the way through this story, Lachlan talks about the biggest threats to our safety, our health, in a way that certainly snapped me out of a false sense of security. The way he talks about antibiotic-resistant bacteria or the, the health impacts of climate change, just two of the overwhelmingly complicated and very real problems that he has to face every day. And if we don't act pretty damn quick, you and I'll be facing these things pretty soon. Dealing with that kind of pressure, eventually for Lachlan, something had to give. In his case, it was his health. He writes all about it in the book, But in this episode, we do discuss war, war trauma and suicide. But we do so because they're just just some of the many issues that doctors like Lachlan face every single day. It's a brilliant story. It's a fantastic read. All made just a little bit sweeter by the fact that we spoke between my house in Sydney and Lachlan's house in Geneva, where he once worked with Médecins Sans Frontières and now provides remote medical support for some of the most isolated communities on the planet he's a great bloke i'm sure that you'll be charmed by him just as much as i was i hope you enjoy this chat with dr lachlan MacIver. i'm so glad that we can uh we can talk today it's a far out man it's a absolute cracking read Jesus, and you've um, been through it, yeah. And look, as someone, I'm impressed Who Thank you. Like both my, like I said, both my folks are doctors, so I grew up around it. I grew up around. A lot of the stuff you, you you write about, I've been through some grim mental health stuff myself. My wife is from oh, yeah. Fiji. My yeah. wife is from Fiji, and
2: uh, I did not know that. Yeah, no.
0: yeah. And the one charity, the only charity my dad ever ever donated to was Médecins Sans Frontier. So, um, look at that. Yeah, when I saw you come through, I'm like, dude, we got to talk to him. Come on. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, but it's a it's an extraordinary story, and people might not think, oh, yeah. It's a it's a book written by a doctor. Why would I, why would I want to read that? But the, the mm-hmm. lens that we, we rarely see the state of the world through the perspective of the humans that are living in it. We see it from the mouthpieces of the leaders of the countries or the news services owned by the countries or the journalists who might be staying in those countries who are traveling everywhere with a fixer and with security and with, you know, so we, we kind of almost get this hyper-real simulacrum version of what's actually happening <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> That's a great way to put it's it. It's true though, isn't yep. it? Yeah. Yep. A doctor in a tent, you know, delivering babies with a bag of saline and a wet wipe, <laughs> they'll tell you exactly how it's going mm. on. So it, I found it just incredible lens to have a look at at the world, man, especially from a kid from Queensland, it was great.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you saying that, and and for taking the time to have actually read the book prior to the interview. That that means a lot to me. And I want to try and make this claim to you, you know, without a hint of disingenuousness that really the 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 memoir genre was just the the sort of logical strategy that I could use yeah. to try and. Highlight these the, the, these issues and and perspectives that I'm trying to um, you know trying trying to describe, but it's really not supposed to be a book about me. It's it's just sort of the vehicle by which to tell these stories of my colleagues and patients, and not even just patients, just people, yeah, communities out there in the world in some of the most interesting and and exotic and dangerous parts of the world from our perspective. That's just. Where they live—that's just day to day life. It's home. From their it's home. Yeah, that's
0: where we live. That's that's where we live, and it's very dangerous to get water because the hippos. That's it. Mm. <laughs> that's where we live. That's where we just how we got, got here. But it's—you're uh, right. Yeah. It's an extraordinarily uh, useful tool. It's a, to to be able to tell tell that story. I mean, particularly, I mean, no one's going to click on a, a journal article about you know mo- antibiotic resistant bacteria no one's going to care about yes. that
2: shit but reading this was this was exactly my my point you've, you've nailed my strategy where were you earlier on in this journey i would have been a lot more efficient
0: <laughs> i would have told you to write a um, memoir
2: <laughs> yeah because I, I realized along the way you know with the dabbling in academia and the pounding out phd thesis and stuff i was like look i'm i'm very concerned about these issues and yeah. I'm, and i'm writing about them yeah but the fact that I'm concerned, the fact that I'm writing about it doesn't mean that anyone, you know, <laughs> is really gonna read them or pay attention or take the steps necessary yeah. to try and sort out this mess. So it was really this um, this compulsion that I felt to try and make the messages more accessible and the fact that I quite enjoyed writing but felt hemmed in by the, the the sort of academic literature genre that led to this this book being born. And I'm just happy that it's it's out there now and that a few people who are uh, sort of willing to, uh, you know, think about these things and discuss them like your excellent self are out there doing that. That's, that's sort of mission accomplished from my perspective. We just need to make it <laughs> get a lot further. Yeah.
0: Well, look, it's, you know, it's, it's written in such a way that it pounds along, you know, and it, you know, because of the work that you've done, it's exciting situation in exciting part of the world in dangerous situation, like page after page after page after page. And that's, you know, here in Australia. As well. So it's not like it's uh And now here's the 500 reasons of about why this yeah. is bad. It's like, oh, by the way, before we talk about Congo, here's a quick l- l- lesson on Leopold II. He was a right cunt and fucking, you know, it's fucking <laughs> great. He was.
2: Just, just for the listeners out there, that's Osher's rephrasing of my. It's uh, <laughs> uh, like not enough more people, um, uh, pe- baroque people, description. <laughs>
0: people think Congo. They, like, people just, like, if you want to have a look at what uh, colonialism is, like how little much of a shit Looks col- like at its worst. colonialism can become and will become if the, if the resource is valuable enough uh, to the people mm. who are extracting it, that's what will happen. And um, mm. it's, gr- it's grim, but it's worth it to, to have a look at, mm. at what actually happened there. And then, you know what's that look like in PNG, for example? You know what is yeah. that? it's happening today in some parts of the world around you know some some minerals and mining and stuff like that. It's important to have that have that look. We should talk a little bit about how you came to be on this path, if if you don't mind. Mm. You grew up. Sure, that's what we're here for. Thanks, man. You grew up a couple hundred k's inland from the Whit Sunday Coast um, in this a lovely little odd Queensland town. How many people do you reckon? Two, three hundred, if that.
2: Yeah, there's definitely that in the at the time. Yeah, yeah. most of whom I was related to. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, right. Cattle country, uh, mm-hmm. in, in that part, yeah. in that part of the world, and look, as a kid, you know, I only know a bit of Adelaide, mostly Brisbane. I only know that. you, know, you only know what you mm-hmm. know. Um, exactly. When, when did you realise that the the world you grew up in and the school you went to was kind of different from the rest of the rest of the world?
2: It was more this realization that there was the rest of the world uh, out there right. that really uh, kind of got me fired up. And it's it's not easy, um, you know, as anyone who's grown up in a small town can probably appreciate. To it's one thing to acknowledge that there is a big wide world out there. It's quite another to actually get out there and see it for yourself. I mean, yep. you've got you've got to have the 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 will. You've got to have the resources. You know, you've got to sort of find a way to. I don't want to say escape exactly, but just to take that that big step. But I was um, fortunate enough in in my final year of high school to really catch a break in the form of this quite incredible program called the National Youth Science Forum. It's it's uh, it, you know my my feelings about it are, are nuanced in retrospect because there was some you know, slightly um, eerie aspects of the program, but overall, it really accomplished a lot in terms of giving kids around the country in their final year of high school with a sort of positive discrimination towards country kids, the opportunity to, to get together in Canberra for a couple of weeks, basically this sort of festival of up-and-coming science nerds where we were not only, you know, encouraged to sort of get to know each other and, and, and see a bit of what was out there in terms of, you know, career opportunities and whatnot, but we were actually kind of helped along our way. We were trained in things like, you know, how to, how to do interviews and how to um, yeah, pre- present a CV and this kind of stuff. We're really encouraged as, as um, you know, kids with potential. And a few of us, uh, at the conclusion of that annual program, were offered the opportunity to, to go overseas, a, a, be trained as staff members to run the program the following year. So you know, I'm a kid from Miller Miller, barely knowing anything else in, in my life apart from my farm and family and school, and off I'm sent to bloody Moscow <laughs> in, the, in the late 90s um, and it yeah it just melted my mind. Yeah, and, um, the, the the it's just amazing. It been another planet, um, and you know, being there, we we're hanging out with cosmonauts. We we're guests of the All Russian Youth Aerospace Society. Fuck yeah! You know, toured around Europe in a train for a couple of weeks. After that, I came back to Miller, <laughs> Yeah, a, a completely changed person. And then two weeks later, my dad drops dead, and I find him on the side of the dirt road and the drizzle in the gravel. And I'm like wow, this is some pretty hectic transition in life I'm going through at the moment.
0: These two extraordinarily powerful things happened in your life, so close, so close Mm. to each other. Uh, It wasn't Moscow um, and it wasn't Miller Miller, (laughs) but I remember those first few days coming back to Brisbane after I'd first been overseas, it wasn't until my mid-20s, just going, all right, yeah, I'm going to have to yeah, I'm gonna to have to say something about this.
2: <laughs> this is a game changer. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, the book opens with the the, the day you, you lost your father. He. It's wild though because cool. you know, reading it, I'm like, I'm three months younger right now than he was when he mm. when he died. Um, I don't want to. It's extraordinary reading the first. So I don't want to blow it for anyone that's um, going to read it. But you you discovered him, and it was. Clearly, way past anything that anyone could do. And as often happens mm. in, in remote parts of Australia, you had to wait way, 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 way too long for help. Mm. Um, yeah. But as someone who's been through something pretty intense, um, there was a scene there that just hit me in the chest. You go from this normal day to day and you're dealing with this really intense, you, you know, you're just going to your family stuff, right? And then suddenly, a house is full of people who all want to talk to you, and everyone's holding mm. a casserole. <laughs> and it's, it's I remember that and going, "Fuck, this is." I don't know if I want to talk to everyone, and I don't know if I want to eat any more casserole. Yeah, and they
2: just yeah,
0: want it was to an help. an intense you know?
2: environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's country life for you, right? That, yeah. That's 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 just a demonstration of of how people. Um, you know, rally around each other in, in times of, of, of great need, you know. The thing is there was, there, was, there was three of us in this, you know, horrible catastrophic situation. There was my mum, my sister and me. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't presume to speak for my sister, particularly not on a, on a you know, fabulously popular <laughs> podcast like this. But I know, you know I can see how her experience was, was particularly difficult without, uh, through that period. Because mum, of course, was in many ways the centre of attention, and rightly so. I had just reached the point where I was semi-independent. You know, I had friends that had car, you know, had licences and could drive and could sort of, you know, come and whisk me away and, you know, go and get drunk and sort of distract me, whereas my sister was just sort of trapped there in yeah. this, you know, horrible little cocoon. So that kind of trauma, and, you know, everyone's got their own stories and trauma, right? Um the, the, the effects at the time or the experience at the time can just lie dormant and, and, and manifest later. It's such a potentially sinister experience. Um, I think we really need to be more uh, aware of and compassionate about and, and thoughtful with respect to how we, how we, I don't want to say treat trauma, but how we acknowledge and, and support different types of trauma because it can just be in there in the brain years later. Well, something, something pops up.
0: And, and then the, business. the idea of having emergency responder psychologists is, I mean, this is late 90s, we're talking this happened. So, this, they, I, I have had mm. an emergency response psychologist here on the show. It's a person whose job is to literally lie under the truck with the person who's pinned until the crane arrives. And, Jeez. and that's, that's, that's her job. And she's incredible at what she does mm. because it's this, it's like first aid talking. It's unbelievable mm. and incredibly powerful mm. for, Preventing, hopefully, preventing like intense PTSD and things like this, um, mm. which is ex- astounding that kind of work even exists. But yeah, yeah. Um, for anyone who's who's listening, uh, I guess you know, you've any any doctor has seen a lot of death, uh, particularly someone mm. who's working in a remote, regional, and war torn parts of the world, you've probably seen a fair amount of mm. really, really sad and hard to deal with death. When yeah. When you think about your own experience and 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 what you've seen, what would you say is if someone around us, like as a young man who's like as you were sixteen, seventeen years old, the young man loses their father. Now, what do you what do you kind of wish could have happened to you and all those kids that you have met along the way? What's the thing that we could maybe take from that and go right? Here's a way that's we haven't thought about yet.
2: Hmm. Well, it's interesting you you frame it like that, Osher, because I have asked myself on multiple occasions throughout the last few years I've been working on this book project and then I have been asked by people more recently, Mm. why did you write the book? Who did you have in mind as an audience? And I really don't want to sound glib here, but I I didn't have pretensions as to how widely read or successful the book would be and I was really quite – quite certain that the most likely scenario upon completing this manuscript would be that my mum, my sister, and my then fiancé, now wife, would probably be the entirety of my of my audience. But fundamentally, even if they never read, I was writing it for that 16-year-old kid right. that I was because in that really you know it, it, intense and, and traumatic period that we were just, just discussing, one of the m- most dangerous, perilous, and uh, uncomfortable aspects of all that was this feeling that I was just completely lost all of a sudden. Yeah. I, was, I was rudderless and directionless and purposeless. And if I had have had at that time a book like that mm. that I could read and go, oh, okay, there is a life out there that I could lead that would be interesting and adventure-filled and, and rewarding, that would have been a very powerful motivator, I think, for me to, to kind of be able to just, you know, get up and, and, and soldier on. And what I certainly didn't appreciate at that time, but again, in retrospect, seems like, well, that's pretty obvious, is that that, that became a recurring theme for me. You know, when I was really struggling with, um, you know, with my uh, sort of sense of self or mental health, it was this niggling little issue of, of, of you know, what am I doing here? This, and and on the converse side this sense of purposelessness that i found most um you know most inclined to lead me down the slippery slope into, into depression or whatever so it's a roundabout way of answering your question i think for for you know folks out there who might be struggling with why they're here what they're doing particularly if they're at that really formative period you know adolescence is a tricky time yeah. right we're all just our little brains are being being molded by any kind of influence positive or negative it's it's you know, if you, if you emerge from that with your shit together, you're doing well. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, just having a uh, – being able to share with, with people, including, you know, uh, country kids like me, there is a world out there. There are amazing um, things that you can do with your life. Don't feel that what you see immediately in front of you is, is all that there is. You know, get out there, get stuck in, get involved, and, and you can kind of create – opportunity and, and and life can be very interesting and rewarding
0: time becomes a very difficult thing to think about when you're in those moments you are so stuck mm. in this but this person was literally just okay yesterday and now they are not mm. okay now this i'm talking yeah. broadly like they, somebody mm. might have suddenly been diagnosed with something like and and yeah. you your brain keeps sucking you back to a time that doesn't exist anymore when everything was fine mm-hmm. as far as, and now mm. you, you struggle going, but uh, why is, okay, now I, oh, this person can't walk or whatever, they're not here or, mm. and it's so, so hard. What, if anything, have you found that can help yourself or the people you're working with kind of get out and, and, and kind of zoom out a bit from from that moment?
2: I'm I'm really digging this conversation. Actually, touching on a lot of the points that I find most most fascinating. I'm also middle age, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, time, the concept of time, and the and the the concept slash reality of, of death are two things that I, I um, hesitate am to say preoccupied with because it makes it seems like it's kind of an unhealthy preoccupation. But that I'm being a bit more conscious of and yeah. and and um and and you know, discussing and and trying to make make my own peace with. And obviously, they're linked, right? Like we are all just either slowly marching or absolutely hurtling towards the end. We don't know when it's going to be, <laughs> yeah. um, generally speaking. And um, it, yeah, it's certainly a bit more, well, a lot more visceral and, and, and real when you are you know, a doctor or, or you know, someone else who, who, who deals with death on a regular basis. It's like it's very confronting. And, and, you know, you inevitably absorb some of the trauma of that experience of, of, you know, caring for someone or being confronted with someone who was alive and is now dead. And that as you were saying, that can be a very, very rapid transition from one to the other, which makes it all the more shocking, I think. But uh, there's, this, there's this beautiful little quote from, from Confucius, of all people, that, uh, that you might know that I'm reflecting on more lately. Yeah, you know, he was around in whatever, year 600, 700. So, you know, this this thinking goes back quite a ways. He Says we all have two lives, and the second starts when we realize we only have one. And so, to me, then this this concept of time and this this the, the reality of of death can be just ever so slightly but beautifully offset by this acknowledgement that oh, okay, if I don't take for granted, you know, every, every every day that I'm here and every you know kind of opportunity that I have to be with my loved ones and, and, and do interesting things. If I don't take that for granted, then, then I'm living the most kind of considered and, and complete life that I can.
0: I remember one of the more, and this is the last thing I'll mention on time, but it just kind of struck me that one of the things that really really helped me was a person who was describing, you know, I was quite worried about an a, a imagined traumatic event that actually never happened. But they said to me, look, even if it does, there's the day after and then there's the week after and the month after and then the year after and then five years after and then there's 10 mm. years after. And it really helped me because I was so focused on that fear of this thing happening and there was just blackness on the other side.
2: Mm. The, yep.
0: the really like never ending story. It was like the nothing on the other side of this. Mm. And it really allowed me to go, well, like, I guess, yeah, I guess. I'll have to go get groceries from somewhere or, you know, I'll still have to shower, you know, it's just little <laughs> like dumb day-to-day stuff. Once I mm. started putting that into my kind of rigid kind of thing, it allowed me to kind of be a little wider lens on that stuff. And mm. I found that I found that really, really powerful. I, I don't want to stay in this space for too long, but I just, mm. you know, considering you I do what you do for a job, uh, I don't really I rarely get the chance to speak to someone who's, you know, just dealing with the reality of humanity, which is the other half. Birth is a really fun part. There's parties, there's engagements, <laughs> there's, there's yeah. burnouts with blue smoke. There's all kinds of fun things around birth. <laughs> and we pretend the other one doesn't exist and we keep buying shit to try and mm-hmm. make it feel further away. But yeah, yeah. Do you, did you meditate on your own death?
2: I certainly cogitate on it. <laughs> Uh, meditate would probably be overstating, uh, my practice, but it's something I would like to work towards yeah. for sure. But I'll, I'll give you the scoop here, Usher. Uh, it is, it is a subject about which I'm sufficiently interested, um, and, and willing to invest my time and energy that I think it has the potential to, you know, be worked up into, into a second book. So you heard it first, Oh, man. mate.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's, for me... Th- that the denial of death is nearly everything—not everything, but nearly everything—and mm, being yeah. an acceptance of death is it's so extraordinarily freeing.
2: <laughs> it's just, yeah, it'd be this sort of nirvana state. I agree. That's I'm that's, not there. Yeah, I'm, I'm not in nirvana state, <laughs> dude. I'm not in nirvana
0: state. But just understanding mm-hmm. that, oh
2: yeah, it ends. Yeah, is so. And what? What? What I find really refreshing. Um, you know, going back to that, that earlier conversation yeah. we were having about you know the the, the, the privilege of being able to travel and, oh, yeah. and sort of you know get glimpses into other cultures. So my wife's Mexican, right, and they have a completely different perspective on death, yeah. and it is something that is yes, it's it's um it's it's considered an inevitability, and and you know people who who pass away are, are mourned by their loved ones, but it's 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 treated very differently, and there's a lot less grief mm. i would say and I, you know, I say this you know from from the naive perspective of, of someone from outside the culture but who yeah. you know is connected to it and, and adores it. it 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 is more celebrated in mm. a way and and you know people who have passed away are still very considered very very present yeah. um you know in a day-to-day sense and, you know, to them every else, sure. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and so my, my point i guess is that even that um perspective that I might have of being you know, terrified of death and, yeah. and uh, you know, sort of give me the, the screaming heebie-jeebies, that, that's also very sort of a it's got it's a cultural bias that informs that view. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, we can we can move on to more cheery topics, well, I suppose. Well, uh, yeah,
0: the next place I want to go is not very cheery at all. But you you've been so many parts of the world, so many parts of the world that are rough neighbourhoods, to say the least, South Sudan. Rough neighbourhoods, yeah. The Democratic, Democratic Republic of Congo, Congo, you know, as, like it or not, as as much as the you know beautiful Instagram influencers photos might show us, parts of our Pacific Island neighbours are mm. absolute poverty, yeah. and it's it's yeah. it's hard to accept, um, and it is yeah. just over there. And the book does go into uh, you know the challenges of healthcare in, in parts of the world that are, as we would think, really challenging. Mm. Mm. Yet I think it's important as we as Australians are starting to face towards a referendum around uh, our Indigenous Australians, that we mm. have a really honest hard look at the healthcare and health outcomes of the people who this country belongs to and was mm. taken from and their culture and practices and traditional ways. Many of them, many of the ways that these these people kept healthy uh kept their mental health in check kept their their uh, their families healthy were ingrained in cultural practices mm, and then mm. along come the british and the europeans and mm. it's it's all gone you have spent time in the Torres strait you spent time in the kimberley you spent time in central australia mm. what does australia need to know about the healthcare outcomes for first nations aboriginal australians
2: well that's a that's a big topic and i again i really want to massive disclaimer up front here i should say I don't, I don't pretend to be an expert in this stuff okay you know i i spent years working in in communities in the regions you mentioned I'm a, I'm a rural journalist and a public health physician someone who has done research into these problems it still doesn't make me an expert um but i'm but i'm interested in the topic and and have have seen a lot and i think it is still uh seriously uh seriously uh, uh, underestimated problem in terms of the the, the the scale in Australia and the the complexity of, of the solutions required so let's look at um, something uh, that's supposed to be on the face of it reasonably straightforward like that the life expectancy specific life expectancy gap so you know as, as, as you and most folks listening would be aware I'm sure there has been for a long time, um, an extraordinary and and grossly unacceptable difference in life expectancy between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, hence things like the Close the Gap initiative, which was specifically designed as a policy to try and address this, that has made minimal progress in in, in over a decade. And that in part reflects the complexity of the problem, right? Um, In the space of a very few generations uh, indigenous people in Australia and in the Pacific and around the world. I'm not trying to say that you know this is a homogenous group. But I'm saying there are definite similarities in terms of the lived experience of Indigenous peoples around the world in the colonial era. Let's say, yeah, and it has been basically um, what we refer to at least in, in in the Pacific as the triple whammy. You've got the the, the historical burden of, of illnesses, particularly infectious diseases, coupled with this colossal Burden of non-communicable diseases. So this is this explosion of um, chronic diseases like obesity, diabetes, heart disease, respiratory disease, kidney disease, and cancers that has has been largely responsible for this. This the difference in life expectancy between indigenous and non-indigenous people, and also we're at this very scary point in in our uh, human history where there are certain societies. And I give the example in the in the book of Nauru. Where that chronic disease crisis is causing a decrease in life expectancy, this is unprecedented in modern human history. These, these are not countries that are, you know, in the middle of a civil war or being affected by the, you know, the AIDS crisis. For example, this is chronic diseases. This is a, a consequence of loss of traditional lifestyles, being forced to basically become dependent on energy-dense, you know, nutrient-free foods, and you know, in places like the Torres Strait, where we're you know, I've, I've treated teenagers having heart attacks. What? In um, such, yeah, and through it, through this is not some sort of, you know, rare genetic disposition they've got. This is just they have the cumulative effects of, you know, smoking and high blood pressure and high cholesterol and perhaps diabetes. And they, you know, there's, there's people around um, who are in their teens and 20s who have the coronary arteries or kidneys of people in their 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, and this is largely the fault of, you um, sort of colonialization, basically. Um, and I try to you know, not, be too, um, not be too kind of obnoxious and aggressive about this in the, in the book, try to demonstrate by through examples. You know, I've, I've worked in plenty of indigenous communities in Australia, and when you visit these communities and you are hungry, there is usually one place where you can go and get food, and that one place is the community store, and the food there is expensive and terrible. And like, well, of course if I lived here, I would also, you know, be overweight and have cardiovascular disease or kidney disease. It's not, it's not because um, you know indigenous people by and large don't want to be healthy. Of course they do. They don't have don't have oftentimes don't have the choice and the choice and resources. And so this is this is the real travesty, I think. So again, I describe in the book how I, I, I got quite um involved in a project looking at the causes of avoidable mortality. Why were there different rates of, of early deaths in different communities around Australia? And why, surprise, surprise, were the highest rates in remote communities and the relatively highest rates in remote Indigenous communities? And I you know, sort of did all this you know, fancy statistical trickery with all the data that we could dredge up from you know, different, um, different sources and surveys and stuff. And what it boiled down to was the reason people are dying unnecessarily and young is because of differences in water, sanitation, hygiene, nutrition, education, employment, housing. So, well, the, anyone could have told you that, right? But having that, um, having those kind of obvious answers, does not lead very, very quickly or easily to having, you know, obvious solutions to the problem. So. It's, it's pretty difficult, I find, not to get pretty cynical and depressed about it. And because it's so bloody complicated, that's why we have seen a pretty pathetic decrease in the, in the life expectancy gap despite these high policies being put in place and, and really earnest efforts by, by many people over many years to try and correct it. We haven't made a lot of progress.
0: It is ex- extraordinarily hard because you cannot, and, and I'm not saying you shouldn't, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if if you live in a community that's 200 k's northwest of Alice Springs, you should be able to have the same access to healthcare that I do, living in the middle of Sydney. Mm. You're an
2: Australian just like me. That's and fresh, nutritious food, and you know, safe housing, and water, sanitation, and a school, and
0: everything. Like Mm. we would not ever let our kids think that's okay. And if at the same time. The things that used to keep me healthy, traditional cultural practices, farming, uh, mm. sorry, hunting and farming are completely not available to me because of mm. grazing and mining and things like that where I can't walk on the lands that, you know, I know all the songs about. Mm. I, can, I know all the songs where I can get the food, but I'm not allowed to go there. Um, it's not okay.
2: It's not okay, but I really want to be very careful and conscious. Actually, you know, we're we a couple of uh, you know a couple of white fellas sitting here talking about these these problems from that Queensland, from are... Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, there you, without there a doubt, are, dude, you're
0: 100 percent right.
2: Yeah, there are people out there who understand these these issues in, yeah. in a, with a lot more sort of yeah. depth and, and nuance. But still, I feel like yeah, in our in our Australian society, there's not enough awareness of how serious the problems are and what the underlying causes are. And yeah. so that's why I think it is it's we can justify having these kind of yeah. conversations and why I write about that stuff in the book. The short version
0: is, as you just mentioned, nobody listening to this would want their family or their kids to grow up with the access to health, education, water, sanitation, and nutrition that we mm. expect. Australians in that part of our country to live by, mm, um, yeah, but yeah. that's their home. Why would they ever leave? Yeah. You know, and that's yeah, exactly we would difficult. It's hard, dude. square, but it's, mm. it's it's really hard for us to accept. But I, th- a, I think it is in accepting this kind of stuff and just being with how uncomfortable it is for me. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the first step to start to walk towards yeah. what it is we need to start to come to grips with and how we might try to make it more right. For more people, yep, yep. as a as a country, um, to have to share the dignity that we would expect as as Australians with everybody, mm. including the people that were here before yep. white people got here. Um, but that's I, you know that's just yep. me saying that you know it's hard, it's hard you know it's so hard. I don't mm. envy anyone who makes policy in this area at
2: all. No, it's it's complex, and you know even uh, from from my tiny little individual perspective. You know, I was I was work, working in this field. I was engaging in this kind of research, yeah. and the complexity complexity of it got the better of me too. I'm like, shit, I'm not sure I can do this. This is this is so so difficult and so depressing that I, I'm you know not sure I've got the guts to 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 continue working on it. So I decided I'm trying to get, tackle climate change. I've got rocks <laughs> oh, in my head, right? Here's
0: is an easier one? <laughs> when I was living in America, I saw an ad for I think World Vision and it had um, Aboriginal kids in it. Mm. I'm like, we don't see those ads in Australia, but there they mm. are. We like to think that as yeah. Australia we don't have charities that are raising money to operate health. We think, oh no, no, I'm giving my money to to Rodney who lives there in Uganda or gee, I'm good doing good with like they run yeah. those ads about kids in our country, in other countries.
2: There you yeah, go. It's, it's just it's disgraceful. Yeah. <laughs> and Australia unfortunately is just gonna kind of- Basically, doing the worst of any country in terms of this indigenous non-indigenous health gap of of any comparable country that is is wealthy and developed, but has an indigenous community, we're we're the worst. So yeah.
0: So dealing with you know uh, indigenous Australia's health outcomes, you're like yeah. This isn't tricky enough. I need something way harder coupled with entire cultural practices and senses of identity as a nation. What should I go for? I know, climate change. (laughs) Let's go. When did you first as a kid or a young man, when did you first start to become aware? I mean, I'm, I'm a bit older than you, uh, so I was very, very aware about the Montreal Protocols, you know, CFCs and all the first mm. talk of global warming, greenhouse gases, the greenhouse effect, you know, atmospheric uh, effects upon warming. was all over mm. the news, and then they went, and we did it. Hooray, 1992, we signed yeah. the deal. We're done, guys. Well done. Job work. Mm. Well done, guys. Oh, 90, I can't remember. Montreal Protocol, whenever it was. So, but where, so I'm, I was quite aware about it from young. When did you st- f- first start to kind of go, oh,
2: spit odd? It's not good. Well, yeah, I mean, in, uh, our age difference isn't that great. Um, things like um, you know ozone depletion, we were taught at school. Global yeah. warming, we were taught at school. But still, it came as a shock to me to to see, particularly the the. Uh, carbon emissions and global warming, global heating, as it's now more accurately called, come up as a public health issue. So I sort of stumbled across this in a way. I was doing my first public health job in the Kimberley. It was in my second year after I finished uni. I was trying to decide whether I was going to become an emergency physician or maybe do something in public health. I didn't know what that was even. Um, but I was trying to decide between these two specialties, which are basically the opposite ends of the specialty spectrum. One's like treating people that they're sickest and one's trying to stop them getting sick in the first place. But for some bizarre reason, they were the two things that appealed to me. And I was, uh, kind of had this really interesting job in the Kimberley where on, on the one hand I was looking at uh, the infectious disease, uh, sort of, you know, surveillance database and monitoring and responding to epidemics, involved in vaccination programs, and sexual health, um, kind of uh, you know health promotion, this kind of stuff. But for some reason, I got interested in, in Ross River virus. Yeah, for anyone that's not heard of it, it's, it's a virus spread by mosquitoes. Um, it's endemic to certain parts of Australia in the tropics. And I, because I had access to this database, I could see that the patterns of Ross River virus disease in that part of the Kimberley, they were quite predictable. Um, but they were they were changing over time, and they were very closely linked to the temperature, rainfall, and humidity conditions. I was like, okay, well that you know, reading about it that makes sense because you know the mosquitoes breed when when it's hot and wet and the virus replicates um you know when it's particularly humid and humans are exposed and epidemics occur and blah 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 and then the more i kind of read about it and thought about it, and i was like well hang on if, if this is changing over time and we've got this climate change in the background wh- what does it mean for the future as conditions are becoming hotter and, and wetter and potentially more humid um and i you know, sort of disappeared disappeared down this rabbit hole so it's like this is all really bad news, <laughs> not just Ross River virus. Yeah. Pretty much all infectious diseases have the potential to get worse due to climate change and not just infectious disease, you know, non-communicable diseases, traumatic injuries, deaths from extreme weather events, the Pandora's box of mental health problems that are all like just thundering towards us due to climate change. I was like, hang on, I'm working in a public health job. I've just graduated from medical school. How is this the first time I'm hearing about this? And by the way, why isn't everyone else talking about this? So how, how, is, how is this um, something that's just kind of popped up on my radar? And I realized, of course, that it wasn't, wasn't just me. There were some very clever people in Australia and around the world really like not just kind of sounding the alarm, but like swinging on the, on the, on the bell trying to you know, summon the world's townspeople to get their attention, including some real leaders in the field who, who were based in Australia at the time, right up to the headquarters of the World Health Organization here in switzerland i was like holy shit this is this is this is really scary stuff that is not getting anywhere near the attention it deserves so that was you know a little nightmarish period i went through for a while working up the kimberly going shit what am i going to do with this information?
0: it's it is it is hard i'd like to talk about it for a second because I've, I've been t- touching mm. it op- upon this on this show it's it's okay to, i mean My period of that, I ended up actually going proper crazy. and had to get on antipsychotics um, because I was starting to hallucinate that it was all happening right now. But it's okay to be really fucked up about it. It's okay Mm. to be just floored with grief and Jesus fuck. It's Mm. okay to have that period of just staring at the wall for a while.
2: You got to. Well, so I I did in a way and tried to – tried to channel that into in a constructive manner. And so I joined yeah. a great organization called Doctors for the Environment Australia. So they're kind of the Australian chapter of a global organization that has similar um, sort of missions and objectives. Uh, but then I kind of had to just stash that in the back of my brain for a while because I was still working in different parts of Australia, finishing my training and the rest of it. But by the time I was you know, approaching the end of my first round of specialty training to become a rural journalist, I was working up the Torres Strait, I was finishing up my master public health, tropical medicine, doing a bit more research this is kind of you know popped up again for me and i was like well i'm not quite sure what i'm gonna do with my career once i you know finish my final exams get my fellowship then i'm kind of free to do something else i always thought i'd go and work overseas and do something that wasn't clear to me and then this job with the world health organization popped yeah. up in the south pacific yeah. working on climate change and health and i was like okay well eureka in a way this is going to be pretty pretty wild but let's let's give it a go um, and then I spent the next two years roaming around the Pacific, working on this 12-country project, trying to figure out what the, each country's particular risks were and what they were already experiencing in terms of health impacts of climate change, and try and put in place some some reasonably sensible and feasible action plans to try and avoid the worst of those impacts. And as I'm doing this, I'm having this kind of, again, this, this weird experience that you were just describing, i like... Why isn't everyone else as worried about this as I am? and you I connect with these people who are working in, in that same field they're like, yeah man I get it yeah fuck if only yeah. everyone else knew what we knew yeah. Yeah. but it, you, you feel almost like you're in this kind of crazy little intellectual cult you've got it's like this information isn't secret needs it's it's, it's it's available yeah. and then you've got these absolute lunatics out there like denying it. I mean God, climate change denial is just such an absurd luxury. I just cannot get my head around it you know the only people who who are able to indulge in that uh you know rich wankers in wealthy countries who you know, have the ability to clothe and feed and air condition themselves while millions of people out there you know sweat and suffer and die so there's this huge c- collective cognitive dissonance on the on the topic that um is really spooky when you connect with someone else It's like yeah man i get it <laughs> it's shit out yeah. yeah yeah
0: it's 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 wild. And, mm. and, and framing climate change as a public health, that's just one of the you know, many issues. You could sh- frame it as a food security issue. You could frame it as a housing issue. You could frame it as a, anything. But is it going to be a public health issue? Is it going to be when, I don't know, the climate changes so much that the dengue mosquitoes can now survive in Australia, and then suddenly Townsville, Rocky, Brisbane are just floored with dengue? It's like, oh, we better do something about this now. Is it going to take something like that?
2: Well, it already is a public health emergency. It's acknowledged as that. So previous WHO Director General, Margaret Chan, categorised climate change very clearly as the, the most important global health challenge of the 21st century. Now, we've been a bit distracted with this COVID pandemic for the last few years, yeah. understandably. Yeah. But yeah. that biggest global health challenge of the 21st century, yeah. You know, previous WHO Director General didn't have it wrong. <laughs> that issue is still there. In fact, it's getting worse. And then there's these other issues like you know air pollution and antimicrobial resistance we can get into if you want. It, it is a global health emergency. It is already causing, at a minimum, hundreds of thousands of, of absolutely avoidable deaths per year. And based on the best evidence we have, the best projections that we have, are uh, that it is basically the health impacts of climate change, whether you're talking about infectious diseases, including diseases spread by mosquitoes, such as malaria and dengue and others, uh, or, or waterborne diseases, or you know, respiratory diseases, or non-communicable diseases, or trauma, or heat, or or um, mental health. All of that is getting worse. The latest um, report you might be aware of from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is it's the largest scientific collaboration in the world. It's a
0: Delightful these, read. It's a beautiful oh, yeah. thing. You know, it's fun. Really
2: uplifting. <laughs> yeah. So, the, yeah, these are these are not <laughs> people that are prone to melodrama. These are these are conservative scientists. Their role in this, you know, under the UN Framework Convention for Climate Change and this intergovernmental panel that put together these reports every few years, their role is to synthesize and summarize the best available evidence out there. And in their latest reports, just come out the last 12 months, they're like, guys, it's, it's worse than we ever predicted and it's getting worse faster than we ever sort of dared to believe. And we are way behind on, on what is required to slow, halt and reverse this process. And that includes the health impacts, right? So my little mission, you know, with, with, my, with my work, with my PhD, and now with this book, is to really try and highlight the fact that climate change is causing negative impacts on our health. And this is everybody's health, not just people living in remote areas or, you know, Pacific Islands, whatever. And it's not some distant future hypothetical abstract thing. It's happening right now. Um, And I have to believe, uh, because otherwise it's the only way I could kind of stay sane and get out of bed in the morning, is that that message has to have some resonance with many people, hopefully the majority of people. Even if you don't really care about... You know, the fact that the planet's heating and the seas are rising and you know, fisheries and crops are dying off and all the rest of it. Even if you don't care about that. If if your family or your community is gonna suffer and die early and unnecessarily because of climate change, does that mean something to you, even if nothing else does? It should.
0: And and this is the thing, like to try to think about, it. I think I've heard the word, I've heard the climate change problem described as a hyper object. It's so massive. You can't actually conceive it. It's like, it's mm. so big. You're like, oh, it's, it's so, As uh, uh, the footy season. Oh no, basketball's <laughs> on. That's good. Yeah. Uh, King, kings Natural are doing It's yeah. too big to think. It's so massively humongous, but, and it's also depersonalized because it is so big. The oceans are rising. Mm okay, the yeah. ski seasons are going to get shorter by 85 days. Meh. Mm. Uh, you know, flooding, uh, parts of Australia, big, no shit. Other parts of Australia, mm. meh. Oh, yeah. I might have like, like horrific malaria and my kids might die because mm. of a mosquito in a part of the mm. world that's never had that before. Mm. Ah, but I, I wonder... And, and this is where, I guess, where the rubber meets the road. Insurance is the other one. Mm. In a country like Australia where there's a, a national healthcare system which we unfortunately take for granted but is probably the mm. most vital, incredible, precious asset our country has, mm. when the financial burden of those diseases upon our public health system starts to get too humongous, it's terrible. But is that... Do you think, like, would that tick the needle? was that push things along?
2: Mm. Look, it's, it's interesting to, to look at it from the Australian perspective because, it, look, it's probably not going to be malaria that really uh, you know, gets people's attention in Australia, despite the fact that the effect of climate change on malaria or on mosquitoes that spread malaria is, it's, it's according to the best calculations, estimates we have, already <laughs> causing the unnecessary death of 50 children under five every day in sub-Saharan Africa. Right, uh, that's sort of problems going to affect most Australians. Dengue fever is the other example that you mentioned, right? So that has in, you know, increased several times over in, in terms of magnitude in the last few decades, and it is projected over the next couple of decades to to increase in terms of the people exposed to dengue fever annually to increase by one billion, an extra billion people <laughs> exposed to dengue because of how climate change is altering the habitats of mosquito. Yeah. The viral replication inside it and the biting behaviours that, that you know, cause it to um, humans to be exposed to it. Still, that's unlikely to be the thing that you know, going to, as you say, moves a needle in Australia. But we are already seeing, if we're paying attention, what some of the more um, sort of sinister and localized effects of climate change in Australia are going to be, including on health. So, right, it is it is not a, it's not a surprise nor a coincidence that we're having this flood after flood after flood after flood. That the, the temperatures rising rising, the seas, the sea is rising. Agriculture is, is becoming you know more unstable at, at a national level yeah. in terms food of security the stability is, of weather is, patterns, yeah. food security. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I think most of us don't really appreciate that that heat in particular is 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 a big deal. We're we're a hot continent, and things are getting hotter. And heat, both the, the sort of steady increase in ambient temperature, and heat waves. As they become, you know, more more um, frequent and/or severe, is probably the one of the most obvious single categories of health effect that, that Australians are likely to experience, yeah. and that's going to get a lot worse over time. Now, again, many probably the majority of the Australians have the ability to protect themselves from those effects if they have, mm. you know, shelter and, and ventilation or whatever. But like most health emergencies or health problems, it's going to be the most vulnerable who are affected yeah. the, the, the worst. So the you know the poor, the very old, the very young, the indigenous people, those with pre-existing medical conditions, it's that same list who get hit by, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a heat wave, you know, whether it's some sort of mm. you know strain on the health system, it's it's those folks that, that are first and hardest hit. what's a step forward? What's the step towards making making this different? So I guess if there was one objective that I was trying to achieve with this book, which is called Life and Death Decisions, it is enabling people to see more clearly that we are all connected and thus responsible in in these these life and death decisions um and and the deaths in particular that are occurring all around the world every day so you yeah, know that that title carries multiple layers of meaning right it's, it refers to the work that the doctors do you know including rural doctors like myself it refers to my own experiences you know the the the, the dizzy ups and terrifying downs that have my mental health and being faced with taking my own life. Um, it refers to the lived experience of many people around the world, as we've been discussing already in our in our fascinating chat, that they are faced with life and death decisions every day if they can't get food or water or be, be mm. or, or shelter or be free from you know injury or attack or whatever. And it then it also refers to the fact that yeah, we, we are all connected. So when we emit carbon when we consume antibiotics when we contribute to inequities and injustices in our health system that mean that you know, for example indigenous people <laughs> uh, suffer disproportionately and die young that's that's all on us and so all that my overarching objective with this book is to kind of illuminate those connections a bit more clearly and have people be more consider it in their actions about how they affect others because I think we like to delude ourselves that our little life is in our little bubble and it, and it doesn't affect anyone else and neither does anyone else's lives affect us. That, that's, that's a delusion and it's a very comfortable one. But if we can just sort of break that down a little bit and, and make people more conscious of the fact that actually my, my actions have, have negative consequences on others and am I, am I comfortable with that? And look, if you're comfortable with that, then you know, off you go. I'm not going to be able to change your mind. But I think just highlighting those those connections into the problems that we're experiencing, but also the potential to, to solve them through you know through through collaboration, coordination, communication. Human beings are pretty impressive in terms of what we're capable of. Um, so I haven't yet lost hope that that we can uh, you know slow, halt, and reverse some of these horribly damaging processes that we're undertaking you know wiping out other species and you know burning a planet and essentially wiping out ourselves um we have we have the power to to get ourselves back on course but it's going to require a more collective and, and coordinated collaborative effort
0: and while I'm, I'm absolutely aligned with you on the the personal choice front and the that our actions if you um in my experience if you try to do everything, you will drown under. Yeah, I agree. Because
2: yeah, you got to pick your battles. the
0: the the the, fu- the absolute fact is, I live inside a system that it is almost impossible to escape some negative consequences of. You know, yeah. I can try yeah. to cause as little harm as I can. Yeah. Yet it is. It is. I mean, I don't eat. I don't eat animal products. I'm plant-based, but I'm mm. sitting in my office right now, if you're not watching this, um, there's probably a hundred things in this room that an animal died to make, mm. all right? Mm. But I am at peace with that because mm. that is – I am. I just am because um, yeah. I, can't, I can't achieve purity. There is, there, is, there is no purity. And you wrote in, you wrote in your book, you, you felt shitty about flying so much. And I get that, and I too pay my – Bloody carbon offset every time because that is my personal choice. But the other mm. side of the coin, which you didn't mention, and I'm, I'm happy to say it, if you know, is there's also a massive agitation. Like, yes, I will pay my extra couple of bucks to offset my um, my flight, but fuck you, Qantas, you should fucking do that. Mm. How, that is yeah. bullshit that you operate like that, and instead saying it's my choice and my decision. Do not pass that burden on to me. You're the guys yeah. burning the. You're the guys burning the fuel and yes i want to get from here to there but I, you are human beings who know too much to know that this is not an okay thing so do your yeah. best to cause less harm and holding our institutions and our systems to the same account i think is very important i love flying i love travel <laughs> there's ways to do it without jet fuel okay they mm. really are that but economically right now the planes are designed we just don't have the scale of the economy of scale right now to put those things into production but with enough agitation, and enough pushing, it's okay. It can happen, um, and I think it's important that we do that. That we push our systems to be as aware as as we're trying to be.
2: Mm. I agree with you, and I think um, it would be ideal if if the the, the for profit sector, you know, companies, uh, industries like uh, like the L industry, did did take responsibility for that, did put in place those those positive change the steps themselves, which you know, some of them are doing to some degree, but it's nothing like the level of commitment that we need, which thus makes it a political imperative. And this yeah. is where it gets really frustrating because it's true. You know, in, in Australia, for some weird reason, we just have this high-speed rotation of, of politics in terms <laughs> of how often we have you know elections and whatnot, which means that I mean, politics is inherently ex- an extremely selfish and self-protective kind of activity. But then we make it all, all the worse by having these extremely short timelines in which the, we expect our policies to operate. And then we sort of act all surprised when they don't have the, the, the guts to commit to long-term um, decisions that are going to benefit us all together beyond the, the next election cycle. So this this is the one of the real kind of um, it's a frustrating aspects of our current sort of socioeconomic system, if you can call it that, it's not just unique to Australia, by the way. Mm. But you know, we're both Australian. we're talking largely about Australia here. I have this. You know, would fervently love to see some more um, intelligent and informed, and, and ambitious and committed decisions being made with respect to you know what what we need in the long term for our collective benefit. And there are there are you know, clever people around there, sort of. You know, involved in you know, orbiting politics that, that you know, know very clearly what needs to be done and we just need you know, politicians who are willing to listen and make make the tough decisions.
0: Just a moment away from Dr. Lachlan to mention uh, just a couple of things. Support for this podcast comes from you. Yeah, you listening to this. If this show brings you value, would ask that you please consider repaying that value by uh, supporting the show at patreon.com slash osher. Our workflow here at OGTV HQ, has, has become pretty packed. We're no longer able to offer any exclusive content on Patreon. However, by supporting the show financially, or continuing to support the show financially, you're helping pay the wages of all the people who work on the show and have done so for years now. I'm not a one-man show. There's like uh, Bruce Steele, Andy Maher, Rachel Barrett, Toe Hyder, epic humans who are worth every single dollar they get paid to make this show three times a week. This is an independent podcast. We are not on a big company owned by a a radio station or owned by a newspaper or another big broadcaster. We're not on a big media-owned platform. We do not have the production resources, the marketing resources, the research resources. We can't write articles about our own podcast and then put it in our own platforms to point back to our podcast. We We can't do that. We're an independent shop and we continue to be an independent shop only because of the support of people like you. Consider this, like if you met me in the street, and I was getting a cup of coffee, would you go, Ah, you know what? I I heard that podcast you did with Dr. Lachlan McIver. It It was really good. I know a lot of billable hours go into every single episode. Let me buy you a cup of coffee. That's five bucks. If you would do that for me, if you met me or Andy or Bree in the street, or Rachel, you'd probably buy it too. Please consider throwing in, you know, five bucks a month, more if you got it. If you do already, thank you so much. You're helping keep this podcast independent, which is very important because it means we get to talk about things we otherwise would not be able to talk about, have conversations we'd never be able to have elsewhere. That's been quite evident in recent weeks. This is a story for another time. If you can't afford it, though, and that's totally understandable. If you can't afford an extra 5 bucks a month or an extra 10 bucks a month, don't worry, that's fine. Someone else is is giving that money to Patreon so they get the same podcast you, you do. So they're paying for your podcast. By you supporting the podcast, you are helping someone who can't afford to support the podcast. Everybody gets the same podcast. If you're not in a position at all to support us financially, that's fine. There's other ways you can really help. You can like, subscribe, comment, rate the show wherever you can, and share it most of all. Tell a friend, tell your auntie, tell your doctor. The link to Patreon is in the show notes, patreon.com slash osher alongside to the link uh, for the live show this Friday night. Also to the Discord server, where I'm, I'm pretty much exclusively communicating with people who listen to the show. Anything like Instagram or Facebook, it's pretty much a one-way street. But on Discord, I'm, I'm always very happy to engage with people because it's, it's a bit of a deliberate place to come to. And so therefore, you know, the people who are there, are there and it's nice. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Dr. Lachlan in just a moment. Hold
1: up.
0: It's, it was said to me about my, my drinking when I, I first complained. It's like, why isn't it better yet? It's like, how long did it take your drinking to get this bad? I said, like, oh, i probably started when I was about 14. I stopped drinking at 36. Okay, right. That's 18 straight years. And you want it to be better in 10 weeks? Okay. Mm. It's going to take longer, mate. And for me, I think that's the big struggle is knowing what needs to be done, but also understanding mm. it took a real long time for these systems to get to this place.
2: Yeah, yeah. moving
0: as fast as we possibly can, it's still going to take longer than I am okay with to Mm. get better. But I have to believe that every single day it gets a tiny, tiny bit
2: better. Mm. I have to believe that. I admire the title of your podcast, which uh, reflects precisely (laughs) that that sentiment, right? Um, Yeah. And uh, yeah, I I, like you um, think if we just – Sort of let ourselves be overwhelmed by the complexity of all these challenges that we're facing. We are just paralyzed when We never get out of bed. So we have to believe that things that, you know things things can get better. And we have to mm. pick our own battles and be willing to say, okay, I, I I have the energy and bandwidth and commitment to be able to do this, but just not this. Yeah, you know, again, that's yeah. just a it's just a sort of self preservation measure. But what I would um, I do think it's important to be clear about is that the the rate of change in this in society in this period we're living in is, is unprecedented so you know things have been basically speeding up since the industrial revolution and then we've had this sort of you know fourth industrial revolution living in the digital age and now yeah, everything is changing exponentially now including atmospheric <laughs> carbon dioxide concentrations so we don't have the luxury of time that we have had in any other period in human history so yeah. we are we are fucking a lot of things up and we've got to we have to acknowledge that and act quickly because we don't have the same kind of luxury of, of leisurely sorting things out that we've had in the past.
0: With that action comes extraordinary possibility and ex- mm, yeah. a huge upside um, because of the nature of the um, of the kinds of change that need to happen. Oh, what, you want to run an economy on an, uh, a, a kind of fuel that has to get dug up out of a, out of the ground and then shipped away on the other side of the world and then burned? What if we gave you free energy? You just have to put this stuff yeah. on your roof. Oh, what could you yeah. make then? That'd be all right, <laughs> wouldn't it? Like yeah. the, the upsides are, are, are humongous. Um, mm. and, and, and looking at through that lens is also really, really important that, I don't know, like does it, does it mean that the, the aforementioned s- systems that some of them are still in place and echoes of the colonialism that has to a large part contributed to a lot of these problems um, mm. might start to get dismantled? That's exciting. You know mm. these things could happen. I'd like yep. to think so. You, no, Hot Springs, turn on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, <you're, laughs> you, you mentioned it. I mean, you talk about it quite, quite generously in in your book. You talk about the the, the struggles uh, that you face, and it's it's not uncommon. I mean, I I was speaking to some Ambos the other day. It's like part of your job. Like you have two two jobs. One, help people who are having the worst day of their life, and two, make sure you don't get you don't catch PTSD while you're out there. Like mm. every single day, you're attending road trauma you know, yeah. or, or, you know, some horrible domestic violence situation or something like that, you're there to help someone and mm. make sure you don't take that shit home. Like you it's equally yeah. weighted, you know, so for, for your job, that is a huge part and, and keeping mm. yourself and you, you talk about how it wasn't always, um, top of your list and in the systems mm. you are operating in long hours, you know, vending machines, you, you know, <laughs> months on end. Um, mm. my mum my mum and dad talk about, um, when they were on shift together, they would they would swap out of the same bed in a ward that was un, you know, one wow. would sleep while the other would go and work and one would sleep while the, yeah. they worked in the same hospital in Stoke-on-Kent. Um, how do you, now, after all the stuff you've been through, how now do you, what, what practices do you have to maintain kind of resilience around the kind of work that you're doing? What, what stuff in your own day-to-day do you do to make sure, right, I am as powerful as I can be to take this?
2: Yeah. Look, thank, thanks for bringing it up. It's a very topical issue at the moment, right? There's, there's a number of books out there written by doctors at the moment, that, that you know, many of which have slightly different angles on this issue. Some of them speaking from very personal experience, some more kind of obliquely in a, in a, in a fictional way, but still highlighting the, the issues. And yeah, my own humble little, little story you know, in Life and Death Decisions, this main focus of the book is not about the risk or phenomenon of burnout in the medical workforce but I certainly do have my own experience to share with that. And what I think is, is most disturbing is that there's nothing special or um, rare about my experience. I don't think you'd find a doctor. I mean, you mentioned your, your parents. This, this has been going on a long time, and it's not just doctors, by the way, but I think the, of, of health professionals, doctors in many ways have the highest expectations put on them yeah. along with the least realistic expectations. So I, I use the examples of pilots, right? So pilots have, have, have our lives in our hands every time we get in a plane and fly with them. They also have very, very strict regulations around fatigue in particular and when they're allowed to fly. And this, this is something that I, I sort of interact with on an almost daily basis because with some of the emergency telemedicine work I do, I'm helping coordinate aeromedical retrievals. And it's very common for us not to be able to move a critically ill injured patient from a remote location because the pilots can't fly because they've gone over their fatigue limit. Where does that exist in the medical system? You know, the way we treat doctors, it, and I say particularly junior doctors, is just absurd in terms of, 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 you know, of what we try and squeeze out of the poor buggers. Um, and then it should be no surprise then, and I say that a bit flippantly, but it's a tragedy, that you know, doctors have the highest rates of suicide of you know any any industry, and we're seeing junior doctor burnout more sort of prominently um, at the moment than we almost ever have. And that's not because it's necessarily worse than it's ever been; it's just because the, you know, these poor guys are like, shit. You know, we need to we need to discuss this a bit more openly. So I think we need to be a lot more compassionate about how we treat our health professionals who we are entrusting to care for us. But we're kind of not caring for them or letting them care for themselves. Mm. Um, and to answer your question about how how I deal with it, it's a very humbling experience. You know, as I as I believe you have been through and many people have been through to come face to face with the limits with your own limits of what you can handle and realize that you have not just met them but exceeded them. Yeah. And in my case, you know, when I when I just imploded, you know, you know burnout. It's just sort of depression, the whole thing. However, you want to kind of frame it. It's what happened. I, you know, caved in on myself like a neutron star. Firstly, you know, it took a lot of blood and sweat and time and love and support to clamber out of that. But then, the 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 partly humbling, partly very illuminating experience of that was like, okay, well, I know what it's like now, and I and I'm not in, I'm not immune to it. I'm not invulnerable. And so now, the best I can hope for is that. Firstly, I'm trying to minimize the risks of me getting to that point again. So I'm trying not to work completely insane hours. I'm trying to make sure I get enough sleep that I'm eating right. I'm able to do some exercise and, you know, avoiding the intoxicants, you know, to a, to a reasonable extent, Just doing all those right things. But then also despite my best efforts, if I see that I'm coming up against those limits, you got to, you got to know yourself and be kind enough to yourself to, to, to do something about it. So you know, there's been times, kind of going through a bit of a period at the moment where I'm like, "Oh, or oh, it's it's getting close. I got to find a new equilibrium here because mm. otherwise, you know, things are going to com- get completely off balance and down I shall spiral once again. It's it's not acceptable. You know, no use, no use to anyone if you if you if you're completely broken.
0: No, ab- absolutely not. And you certainly don't want to take the people around you down
2: uh, with you. Mm. Mm.
0: And it is in that state. And I'm I'm fortunate that I'm. Um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm in a, a loving relationship, uh, but you know there are people that that are uh, single or or they are alone, mm. and so it is somewhat trickier to find people who will say, um, "You might think you're okay, but I know you, and you're not. So mm. you need to go see your mm. doctor." And yeah. I, Audrey, has said that to me more than once, and I I know that if my brain goes, "Well, oh, what does she know?" I'm like, "Aha, that's the voice that tells me, yeah." I, if my voice, if that's going, then I'm going to see my psychiatrist tomorrow because yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. it's uh, recognizing that voice of denial, mm. um, because I trust her so much, and then ah oh, okay, I should get back on meds. Yeah, good idea, mm. and, and I did, and it was great. Uh, but it, it's th- this idea that. You know, even even you. You know, you're you know you're, you're working in Switzerland. You're you know at the, the top end of you know policy and, and like the cutting edge of like how do we humongous complex problems. Um, super 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 smart person went to Moscow uh. as a young scientist, like incredible, <laughs> and yet your ideas aren't enough to cope. And doctors mm. are the the shittest patients always, mm. and I know because both my mm. parents were doctors, and like, <laughs> man, they are bad. They do not mm. do what they get told because they think you don't understand i'm the smartest person i ever knew so why would i listen to anybody else mm. uh, so well, what's it yeah, like for I mean, you what's it like for you then to go i'm actually going to need someone else's ideas here i might have to go talk yeah. to someone
2: yeah well, for me it's not a question of being being smart it's, it's the it's the expectations you put on yourself as well yeah um yeah if we have committed our our careers and our, our lives effectively to to helping other people that on the one hand, it's weird. But on the other hand, it's, it's on the other hand, it's logical. That takes precedence over everything else, and so I think a, a lot of doctors and other health professionals and other other professions as well will will be almost sort of um, self destructively committed to helping others. And I think you know I can look back on my life and see see little shades of that. And it it, it sort of it's this e- extra sort of psychological and emotional step to go. Hang mm. on. I'm I'm putting myself at risk here, and I'm, um, yeah. you know, it's sort of living my life in an, in an unhealthy way. And at some yeah. point, inevitably, that's going to compromise your ability to to help others. And the the worst case scenario, I think is you've got to avoid at all costs, is getting to the point where you're not safe to be to be caring for others because because you are so fatigued or so stressed or distracted or otherwise compromised. That's that's. So that's the thing to be awarded at all costs.
0: What are your, like just for people listening, what are the things that you, you watch out for? What are the, the things that you take, the signs that you take notice of in your own self?
2: Oh, look, f- fatigue is, is, is a big one for me. Um, uh, it, I, I you know, live a pretty high tempo lifestyle in many respects, but, but I, I, I get tired. And, um, and as my, my wife would be the first to attest, uh, it's pretty obvious when I'm tired. You know, I, I'm sh- short tempered. Um, it's kind of irritable. Uh, yeah, not, don't, Mate, don't we're think all, as,
0: we're all just big toddlers. Look, come on, it's fine. Yeah, exactly, we're all just exactly,
2: big to, If I we get, haven't
0: eaten, if we haven't slept, if we need to shit, we, we all get upset. Get it's grumpy. Fine yeah,
2: yeah. we do. And, uh, and you know, my, my lovely wife sort of looks after me, but it, she's not the only one that's ever done that. Like I've worked with some wonderful yeah. you know, nurses in hospitals over the years who didn't even need to say anything. It'd just be like, you know, sort of whatever, 10 p.m. or 3 a.m. or, you know, 11 a.m. or whatever. And just this sort of cup of tea and a biscuit would be slid in front of me. i you know, look around and go, what's that? And I was like, ah, ah, okay. <laughs> Message received. I was being a bit of a grumpy asshole, was I? And they're like, yeah, just needed, uh, you know, some caffeine and a, and a sugar hit. So, yeah, I think fat, fat, yeah. fatigue is a big one. And you know, I've already kind of made the point about, I think, how we have unrealistic expectations of how much yeah. doctors can work. First and foremost, I'm a rural journalist, and um, yeah, so many of my colleagues are, you know, out there in, in rural, and remote communities, often as the only doctor in that town, yeah. and that is just punishing. That is crippling, and it's it's not fair. It's it's inhumane. You know, I don't know how these guys do it. You know, power to them. I'll, I'll be humble enough to say I couldn't do it, not not long term. Um, so that's where I think it's so important that we have these these sort of I don't want to say. Compromise it makes it seem like it's diminishing the quality of care, but these innovative solutions to yeah. to you know, medical workforce crises. Like, you know, I, I work for um, for the virtual rural general service in Western New South Wales, and we provide round the clock medical care through TV screens to, to patients in these sites, most of whom have no doctor at all, or some of whom have a doctor, but that poor doctor can't be on call for everyone all the time. And it's th- those kind of solutions, I think, are, are, are imperfect, but they are essential to you know, enable people, as we were discussing earlier, even in the most remote disadvantaged communities to have access to medical care when you can't have, you know, a a perfectly qualified clinician there on site Mm. all the time.
0: Be nice to your doctor
2: no matter where (laughs)
0: they are. They might yeah. have just come back from doing eighteen months in Cooper Petey. You know? <laughs> and, yeah. and now yeah. they're sitting in your suburban general practice like, This is like to, this is amazing. I'm like on a tropical holiday. This is incredible.
2: Well, um, I mean how we treat GPs in Australia is, is pretty appalling, I'd say. Like you're just, they're, oh, just you know, they're the worst based specialty, just crazy kind of um work life balance, fifteen minute billings, mm-hmm. Medicare, not even oh, you know, coming close to compensating for what their work, you know, that's that's a whole other pandora's box I remember,
0: yeah i did i remember when my mom when the, her practice as a gp when her practice got absorbed by a conglomerate and mm. she started going like i oh, now i'm 64 i've got a type i've handwritten everything my whole career i can mm. only see people 15 she says medicine takes longer than 15 minutes What is this i can't find out what needs to go on what the yeah so yeah, you know you're not Robinson Crusoe there, it's, um, <laughs> mate. I, I could talk to you, all, I could talk to you all night, dude. I really could, um, but I know you've got a <clears throat> you got a busy day. I, I
2: really appreciate your interest, Osher, and for taking the time to chat. Oh, you of know, course. Good luck with the good luck with the hip. Mate. And your your energy, your positive energy is is truly infectious, mate, in, in the best possible way. So good on you for having this podcast with the beautiful spirit that that you know that it brings. Um, yeah, it's been a privilege to chat to you it's been yeah, a great fun as well
0: and that was Dr Lachlan McIver his book Life and Death Decisions is brilliant it's out right now, get it wherever you get your books thank you so much for listening and I really do hope you can come on Friday, I love going live I, I have always been an on stage person, I've always relished being with a the crowd there's something that happens with an audience that doesn't happen elsewhere I learned how to do what I do in front of an audience and I really want you to be there because it's going to be pretty fucking good. The gig is at Improv Theatre Sydney. It's in Redfern. It's 500 metres down the hill from Redfern Stations, across the road from Redfern Surf Club. Uh, it's 9.30pm this Friday night. There's sh- other shows on before us, so you can make a night of it or you can grab a bite around the corner at the pub and then just scoot across and get a seat when the doors open. Uh, either way, it will be awesome to see you there. The... the Link to the tickets is in the show notes. I think it's like 15 bucks. We kept it as cheap as we could because we've got to pay for the room and pay for the people who are working on it, like the crew and stuff like that. But it'd just be rad to have you there. Big thanks to everyone that made the show with me today. Toe Heider, who made all the music. Bree Steele on research and support. Andy Marr, who did post-production, audio and video. Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of Everything and Keeper of Birds. Yes. There's some backyard bird situations happening at Rachel's place, which I'm getting great photographic updates of, and it's pretty special. There's a king parrot whose name I think is Graham, but we're going to get. This will be revealed in later episodes. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Till then, come and see me on Discord if you need anything. And uh, if not, I'll see you Friday morning and then Friday night, I hope. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening. Sleep well. Geron, beautiful things.